Hello, and welcome. My name is Matt Peterson, and you are listening to Episode 2 of History on the Table. Alright, well, welcome back. For those of you who listened to the first episode, and for new listeners to History on the Table, welcome. What I thought I would do on this... uh, this next episode, this episode two, is kind of step into a more rigid and structured format. For those of you that didn't join us last time, I kind of just did a bunch of broad topics, kind of a 2018 year in review, a 2019 look forward, um, some some takeaways, and then I, I ended with a, a top 10 list because who doesn't love those? What I thought I would do this week or uh, this episode is kind of go through what you can expect the format to be for most of our shows going forward. I plan on at least somewhat sticking to this format as I go forward. So what I kind of thought I would do every week is do, I don't want to say news, because I feel like most listeners who are out there looking for a war game specific podcast are already pretty well in tuned with wargaming news. And just because of the irregularity of the release of these episodes, it's it's hard to stay relevant with news. So kind of what my news section would be, or, or what my thoughts were on what a news section would look like for this podcast is just kind of, uh, okay, These are this is relevant news because this is something I'm taking an interest in. So I'm not going to announce a war game that I, I'm not pre-ordering or signing up for P500 uh, myself. Or unless it's, I mean, I guess it's if it's really noteworthy, I don't want to say never. And since 2019 is already underway, what I thought I would do is kind of go f- through games that I already have ordered that I hope to expect or, or are expected in 2019. Now there's several of these and I'm I'm going to kind of focus on four what I'm not really hitting on here are P500 reprints. Um so real quickly, you know, Empire of the Sun, we should be getting the the new print of that game in 2019 from GMT Games in our Den 44. That's what I'm really excited about. If you listen to my first episode, you know um, I'm a really big Mark Simonich fan, so I'm really excited to to finally get a chance to play Ardennes 44. I think Korea Next War, that, that has hit the 500 pre-order mark, so I expect hopefully at some point in 2019 we may see that go to the printers. I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time, time on reprints of games and, and maybe focus on, on the new things, although I did just uh, talk about all of this. Okay, so new games or, you know, complete reworks. This this first game, I'm breaking my rule right off the bat, is actually a reprint. So again, these are 2019 pre-orders that I'm looking forward to. And what the section will look like in the future is new games that I personally am adding to my pre-order list or I'm heavily considering. And I have four to start off the year. And what kind of prompted this is I posted on Board Game Geek a, a question of what's on your 2019 radar um, and I still need to come through that list, but it's going to be dangerous because I expect that this this list will at least double. 
so at the time I made this list and before adding anything else, really, I have four games that I expect from companies in 2019 that I'm really looking forward to. So two of them are coming from Compass Games. The first one is one I am very much looking forward to, and that is the new designer signature edition of the Korean War. This, of course, is the reprint and new edition of Joseph Bukowski's, I may have said that wrong, original Korean War game. And this is a uh, operational level game that covers the first year of the Korean uh, conflict. I think for a long time this is uh, has been a grail game for, for many people. And it's coming out for the perfect time, at the perfect time for me individually. Uh, the Korean War just recently has been something I've I've grown fascinated with. Um, not only with the excitement I have for OCS Korea, but just from what I've been reading. And uh, I've made it a goal to play a lot of Korean War games this year. So this is perfect. Um, this is coming out at a time when my interest at the Korean War is at an all-time high. Which isn't too hard a level to reach because... Prior to the the game from 2016 called The Chosen Few, which was a really simple solo player game about the Marines at Chosen Reservoir, my knowledge of anything, of any meaningful event from uh, the Korean War, uh, I, I had no knowledge of any kind of meaningful event from the Korean War. Uh, and had very little interest in exploring the Korean War, and that that's since changed uh, again through through things I've read and uh, looking at different games. So the Korean War, June nineteen fifty to May nineteen fifty one, designer signature edition. I believe that's expected in quarter two of two thousand nineteen. Okay, so the second game is uh, from Compass Games as well, and this may spoil. My thoughts on the, the featured game of today's episode, which is Battle Hymn Volume 1, because I, I have pre-ordered and uh, very excited for Battle Hymn Volume 2. So Eric Lee Smith, this is his follow-up to his newest, as far as I know, brigade-level Civil War game. And I don't imagine there to be a whole lot of changes, but this particular volume will cover the battles of Shiloh and Bentonville. Now, Shiloh is a battle I'm familiar with. Uh, to be honest, as much as I have been enjoying Civil War for the last year, I am unfamiliar with the Battle of Bentonville. Uh, so I'll look forward to seeing what that's all about. And that's probably because I just haven't gotten there in, uh, for the last couple of years. I've been very slowly making my way through Shelby Foote's uh, this, uh, work on the Civil War in audiobook. I, I treat it almost like a podcast on my commute to work. That, that's it from Compass Games so far. I wouldn't be surprised if that's changed. Um, generally, I've been very impressed with the games I've played from them, although only a couple are coming to mind. So, of course, Battle Him, which we're going to talk a lot about at the end of this episode, and then uh, the taste I got of Festung Europa, uh, which is an operational Western theater World War II game uh, that I really enjoyed. Uh, the small amount I got to play before my wife lost interest. So looking forward to see what they do in 2019. There's some other games of theirs that I'm considering that were 2018 releases. Again, going with the whole Korean War theme, there's Korea Fire and Ice. The problem there, from what I understand, the first edition rules, uh, to put it bluntly, were just a shit show. I think the developer and Compass Games have gone a long way to uh, 
smooth those out. I know the second edition rules are out there. I'm kind of waiting to get some feedback on those rules to see if the second edition rules kind of smooth smooth over some of the problems um, from the first edition. Okay, so let's move on to Multiman Publishing. Uh, two games from Multiman Publishing. The first is one that I thought would have maybe come out by now, but we haven't heard anything as far as I know. I do believe that Multiman Publishing has said that we can expect more news on the state of their games at Winter Offensive. I'm sure all of us will be looking forward to any news from them. I think there's uh, several games that uh, people are anxious for. Uh, I think the new Russian ASL module is coming out, which I'm sure is a big deal. So what I'm um, what I'm interested in, in particular from Multi-Man Publishing 2019, is also a tactical level game. That's Front Toward Enemy, which is a tactical level Vietnam War game from Joe Chaken, Chacon, I'm, I'm sorry, I have no idea how to properly pronounce that, and I'm sure I butchered it, um, so my apologies to the designer. Uh, but yeah, this looks really promising. I don't know a ton about it other than, you know, tactical level, Vietnam War. If you recall, I briefly mentioned in episode one that I that I started to look at modern era tactical level stuff, and so that's what kind of led me to to front toward enemy so right now i have that pre-ordered from multi-man publishing i have no idea if we'll see that in 2019 it's over their pre-order mark so hopefully it will go to the printers and we will get an update soon at winter winter offensive 2019 the next game is a follow-up to the first multi-man publishing game that i ever purchased and that is to take washington this is the new game in the line of battle series from Dean Essig. So the first game I bought was None But Heroes, which is the line of battle game covering the Battle of Antietam. And that's kind of the game that probably kicked off my, my Civil War obsession, even though I haven't played it yet, <clears throat> which probably makes no sense. Yeah, I bought the game, and then I started reading all this stuff about the Battle of Antietam, bought a couple books. It was probably around that time that I started Shelby Foote's Civil War, and so this game actually has done a lot to uh, promote my interest in this hobby, but yet it remains unplayed. Uh, I hope to change that this year. We'll see. If I can get that played at a convention or, or a face-to-face game, I'd really like to. But just from what I've gathered um, from user comments, some videos, just from looking at the game, it's a really great system that I think I know I would enjoy. And so I, I'm not going to hesitate, and I'll go ahead and pull the trigger on to take Washington, which is covering uh, Early's campaign in, in um, 1864 to try and advance on Washington. Uh, so, yeah, I'll look forward to that. There may be some other, I don't know how many scenarios or anything can come with that. I just know that it will probably be uh, worth checking out. Uh, so one more thing that I think I'll mention this kind of news or pre-order or keep an eye on section. I don't know, maybe I'll give it some name, maybe I won't. Mark Holt Walker mentioned on Twitter that Old School Tactical Volume 3 will be launching on Kickstarter from Fr- Flying Pig Games sometime this February. Now, I will not kickstart this unless I get a chance to play Old, old School Tactical before then. 
Again, going back to episode one, that's one of my goals for 2019. Play old school tactical and compare that to other tactical games that uh, or tactical systems that I own, mainly Band of Brothers. But as we'll discuss a little bit later, that list needs to expand. One, I left a game completely off the list of tactical games I own. In addition to Combat Commander, which I'm not even really considering for this list, but and then also um, a recent acquisition. So now we have four tactical systems to compare. I'm going to talk about that later, but one of them is Old School Tactical. So if I get a chance to play Old School Tactical Volume 1 and I enjoy it, and Volume 2 is not required for Volume 3, I'll seriously consider uh, backing Old School Tactical Volume 3 this February from Flying Pig Games. Okay, so that's kind of uh, early 2019 things on my radar. Uh, things I'll, I'll keep an eye on and look forward to. And as we go forward, most of that stuff should be newer things. Or I guess it could be things I completely missed. I had no idea that the Korean War was getting reprinted until, uh, well, shortly after I recorded the first episode. Okay. Uh, and then what I thought I would do next, each episode, is talk about games that I've added to the, to the shelf. So games on the shelf. So new acquisitions... Uh, in whatever way, the trades or, or purchases. And the first game I thought I'd mention is Root from Leader Games. From what I've gathered, this is essentially a coin game, but with woodland creatures. Now, I know I spent this whole episode last week talking about how coin really wasn't for me, but I'm, I'm willing, I also mentioned I'm willing to give the system some more love and a large part thanks to Fire in the Lake, which I really enjoyed. So we'll see. I think the theme is awesome. I think it's cool that they took something like coin and and did you know something that makes uh makes me think of Redwall, things like that. Yeah, it's neat. Uh, a coin game set with woodland creatures. That's that's pretty cool. So I ended up finding a copy of that. My wife and I traveled to St. Paul last week, and uh, to go watch the Jets play. Uh, Winnipeg Jets played the Minnesota Wild, and while we were there, I talked to my wife into going to the source. Now, the source is well-known, or I don't want to say famous, but it's somewhat well-known because that is where the group, the First Minnesota, that's what their name is on BoardGameGeek, uh, it's a group of war gamers in the Twin Cities area, I guess. They meet on Fridays, I don't know how many times a month, to play war games at the source. And so the source was this really neat store. I tweeted out a couple of pictures that is comic books, a surprising amount of books, both like fantasy, fiction, and they seem to have quite a few historical nonfiction books, which I was really impressed with, and then board games. So comics, bo comic books, books, and board games with, of course, they had Magic the Gathering and, you know, Euro games, you know, they had a Days of Wonder section, all that stuff, but they also had a really healthy selection of war games. And I have a local game store here in Kansas City called Tabletop Game and Hobby that has a great war section, but it's pretty much dominated by GMT, uh, which isn't a problem, but you don't, they don't, from what I've noticed, they don't tend to keep multi-man publishing games on the shelf. I'm pretty sure they can order them, they just don't stock them. Uh, so it was really neat to walk into this store, and uh, there on the shelves were several multi-man publishing games. And that was really neat. I would like to have that nearby 
because multi-man doesn't have the friendliest shipping options. Uh, so it'd be nice to uh, be able to pop into a store, not have to wait for shipping and grab your game. Uh, it was pretty neat. We walked in at about 11, and already there were two war games going. One was nothing I had seen before. It sounded like a World War One game, but I didn't pay much attention to them because two other gentlemen were playing Tennis Racier's game, The Dark Sands, which is the follow-up to his earlier game called The Dark Valley, which was East Front Campaign, and now Dark Sands is uh, North Africa, World War II. So, uh, they were playing that, which is a nice transition into another game that is new to my shelves, which of course is Dark Sands. I've been hearing some good things about it. I didn't hear the best things about Dark Valley. Uh, I think the biggest complaint that was of interest to me was the fact that it had some game-breaking mechanics. And not that I'd be able to discover those on my own, but just knowing they were there, I, I lost interest. So I, I haven't heard anything about Dark Sands having the same issues. I don't have a whole lot of North Africa games, and the fact that it uses a chip-pull mechanic is, is interesting to me. So far, the reception has been great. i uh, watched a couple of videos on it and uh it's a great looking game um, the map's really unique with the uh with kind of the non-important areas cut out from north africa and from what i understand is the sections of the map are are different scales and so when you have these two map pieces uh together it's a, it's a really long map with it seems like a lot of the game information on the map so the the full reinforcement turn order is on there and and all kinds of information. There, there's a million unboxing videos of this game out there already. So I will look forward to, to playing that hopefully soon. Some Probably some other things I'll try to get to the table before then. And then, again referencing last week's episode, talked about Band of Brothers, how I'll be exploring that system more this year. I'm having a really good time with it uh, so far. I've been able to play twice this year and we're we're getting right to the point where we will start adding in more and more details. So I grabbed two things. One, I grabbed the Battle Pack 1, which is you need one of the previous, you either need Screaming Eagle, Band of Brothers Screaming Eagles, or uh, Band of Brothers Ghost Panzer to play. You don't need both, but you just need one. And really, you just need the play raid charts and some of the... Uh, Oh, I don't know. Just the miscellaneous game markers to be able to play the battle, the battle pack. And so what the battle pack does is it it adds a f 22 by 34 map, which is a lot bigger than the normal. Ba -ba -ba -ba. Let's see. Uh, ba -ba. Of course, I have the rulebook right here in front of me, but I don't see what the actual map sizes are. But the Band of Brothers maps are pretty small. And you combine several of them into these larger scenarios. But what the battle pack does is it adds four kind of massive scenarios on these uh, on this double-sided map. So one side is like a hill, and it's got some buildings and stuff. And the other side is uh, is a snow map. And so I think it's three German-Russian scenarios and then one German U.S. scenarios. But they look like a lot of fun. There's just all kinds of units, a lot of stuff going on. And uh, so they're just kind of big campaigns uh, or big uh, battle scenarios. 
so that looks like a lot of fun. And then while I was at it, I figured, well, I'm really enjoying this system. Let's go ahead and grab Ghost Panzer as well. So Ghost Panzer is Band of Brothers. When it first came out, there's Band of Brothers Screaming Eagles. And then Band of Brothers Ghost Panzer came out. And Ghost Panzer did a lot in the way of cleaning the rules up and updating Screaming Eagles. So now if you buy Screaming Eagles, you have the updated rules. You don't have to worry about that stuff. But it was the Ghost Panzer rule set that kind of, I think, turned Band of Brothers into the game that it is now. And so Ghost Panzer comes out, and it covers uh, the Russian front from 41 to 44 uh, with 11th Panzer Division. And so I figured to go in and dive a little deeper into Band of Brothers because I really have enjoyed my most recent plays of that system, and I think I'll continue to do so, especially when we start throwing the, you know, the sexy stuff in there, when you start throwing tanks and all kinds of different things in there. Okay, and then I, I need to talk about one other... Uh, game that I purchased, and I pretty much did it right after the first episode went out, and um, I broke my promise, or resolution, again, so I talked about tactical systems, and I made this grand declaration that I have no interest in ASL, the barrier of entry is too high, It's the cost is too high, I just have no interest in playing a game that detailed, and lo and behold, it just took a little nudge for me to be pushed off that cliff, and I went ahead and ordered a copy of Advanced Squad Leader Starter Kit 1. Yeah, so and I really considered some of the full the full modules or, or whatever they're called, but I figured, all right, let's pump the brakes. Let's just play around with the starter, starter kit and uh, see what we like, uh, see if we like it, and then we can compare it uh, to these other tactical games. So yeah, I'm a big hypocrite. Uh, so why? Well, first off, a couple of things I didn't realize or take into consideration. One, the starter kit, the first starter kit is set at a really great price point. It is perfect for dipping your toes in. When it's in print, I think you could probably find it for $20 without shipping, no problem. So you get something like six or eight scenarios to test out Advanced Squad Leader. Now, yeah, there's a lot of rules taken away, but you get the the essence of the game, and it's with 11 pages of rules. So these are all infantry-only scenarios. Everything's watered down a little bit, but I, th I think from what I've gathered, it's plenty to be able to tell if you like Advanced Squad Leader or not, and if that's a rabbit hole worth uh worth going down if that's a if that's something worth pursuing so the starter kits are are available now i think a new print order should be coming out soon so um i don't think there's any risk of them going away anytime soon uh so yeah the price was right and i figured oh what the heck i'll break my uh break my promise and and i'll give uh i'll give this game a look so just a couple weeks later, and I've joined a local ASL group, and I'll, I read the rules last night, and uh, I'm already Jones into play. I've been working through this scenario, this really great uh, playthrough that's posted on the Board Game Geek page of Advanced Squad Leader. And yeah, I'm really looking forward to it. There's a lot going on, even those, even in those 11 pages, but it's a lot that looks really promising. 
this is probably no surprise, but I see a lot of similarities between Band of Brothers and, and ASL. Obviously, Band of Brothers is a lot less rules overhead, but I can I can see where Band of Brothers uh, definitely drew some inspiration from ASL or, or probably Squad Leader for, for that matter. So this requires a little bit of an update to my 2019 goal of comparing tactical games. So Band of Brothers, of course, is still on the list. That's not going anywhere anytime soon. And then Old School Tactical. I still have Old School Tactical 1 that I received in a trade that I will be playing and comparing and uh, hopefully enjoying. There's a lot of neat stuff out for that game already, and it seems like Flying Pig Games is going to do a lot to support that game. Uh, So I hope it's something I'll enjoy. Everything I've seen so far seems like I will. And then uh, ASL. So at least the starter kits, or at least a couple of the starter kits. I don't. I may go to starter kit three. I've heard that's a good path. Just skip starter kit two and then move into starter kit three. So starter kit two adds ordinance, and then uh, starter kit three adds tanks. So that'll be another goal for 2019. And then a game that I completely left off from consideration last last episode was fighting formations. So Fighting Formations is another tactical level game from GMT Games this time. So we'll have uh, Compass Games, Flying Pig Games, Multiman Publishing, and GMT Games all represented. And Fighting Formations, I actually think I will like this game enough. I went ahead and grabbed the 2018 expansion, which I, my understanding adds some smaller scenarios to make this game a little bit easier to play but really don't know what to expect. But the goal is to get this played and then play it at a con later this year. Anyways, I'm really excited to see what this game offers. So that's four games that I will be comparing and playing in 2019. Uh, And I'll keep you updated as I go. So Band of Brothers from... uh, Oh, I said... That's not right at all. I said Band of Brothers is from Compass Games, and Band of Brothers is from Worthington Games. So Band of Brothers, uh, Fighting Formations, Old School Tactical, and then, of course, uh, the big daddy, ASL. Although, ASL's little stepchild, ASL starter kits, is the goal for 2019. Okay, and then what I thought it would be kind of neat to do, or at least of some interest, is just really quickly talk about uh, books that I read, and and specifically historical nonfiction books that I read and enjoyed. And one I really wanted to mention is On Desperate Ground by Hampton Sides, and this is, and I'm not trying to be hyperbolic here, this is probably the best nonfiction, historical nonfiction book I've ever read. Uh, It was fantastic. So On Desperate Grounds is the story of the Marines at the Chosen Reservoir. And uh, it gives you a little bit of backstory before then, obviously, um, their amphibious invasion of Korea. And then uh, the events kind of leading up to their advance uh, towards the Yalu River. And the book is a fantastic depiction of everything... Uh, probably not everything, the events that, that they went through. So their survival, their cutoff of, from supplies, their, their reinforcement, and then eventually their escape 
their escape out of the chosen reservoir area. It, it was really fantastic. The book read really easily, almost like a fiction book. Hampton sides. I mean, he, he picks this great story, right? Such a fantastic story about these Marines surviving and all of that. But he just writes really well. Very digestible, really, really enjoyable, and I highly, highly recommend it. A couple of the books that are that I'm reading uh, right now, two of them, um, one I'm sure many of you have heard of, Enemy at the Gates, The Battle for Stalingrad, William Craig. I've never read this before. Yeah, I turned it on uh, on the way home from after I wrapped up reading some rules. I, I switched to reading uh, reading this book and it's been uh, it's been really easy reading so far as well really enjoyable I'm only probably I don't know five five or ten percent into the book so East Front is I don't know maybe where my reading will will take me next I don't know a lot about it just from some documentaries I've watched here and there and then the other book I'm kind of dabbling in is I'm going back to uh, I restarted my progress on A Perfect Hell, The True Story of the Black Devils, The Forefathers of the Special Forces by John Nadler. This is a book about the first special first special service force from World War II. They have like some crazy ass statistic about like every casualty they took, they inflicted some ungodly number back. So really interested. It it started as this planned this group planned to uh invade Norway using snowmobiles is uh, what I've gathered so far. I'm pretty early on. They are training in Helena, Montana right now. It's okay. I'm, I'm more interested in the uh, Stalingrad book right now, but I want to stick with this perfect hell book. If it, if it continues to be okay, I'll stick with it just because I think it'll tell an interesting story about these guys. So that's from the bookshelf. Really, truly recommend if if you have any interest in the in the Korean War, uh, on desperate ground was fantastic, and you don't you don't need any background information on the Korean War. I certainly didn't have any, other than the fact that I knew that there was these group of uh, Marines and then also uh, Army as well. I guess to the northeast, trapped, more or less cut off by uh, Chinese and uh, North Korean and communist forces um, from their supply line, trapped in this uh, reservoir during. Uh, some brutally cold months in Korea. Super great book. Highly recommend it. Okay. So before, one last thing, before we get to uh, the featured game, Battle Him, I thought I would mention a couple games that I've been playing since the last episode. So one of them, real quick, I thought, I thought I'd just mention Band of Brothers again. Maybe it's not worth mentioning. But yeah, the, the plays have been great. It's just such a breeze once you get those rules down things really start to click and it really helps if both people know what what's going on and that's the difference i think between this play is i'm playing with a player who has read the rules and the last few times i've tried to play has been with players one guy i played one scenario with but he was unfamiliar with the rules so it was a learning game from him and we never revisit it and then a buddy of mine spent a good day playing like the first three or four scenarios and by the end he had it down but when both people know this game, this thing clicks, and there's really not that much to learn for the first three scenarios. And then the great thing is, is once you have the basics down, you know, I apply these modifiers during uh, op fire, 
uh, which is opportunity fire. So if someone's moving across, you know, your line of sight, you can have your squad open up fire on these guys. You know, it tells a great story. You, you have your machine gun perched up in a house and this guy bolts out in the open and you open up on him. So, you know, once you learn these op, op fire modifiers apply here, but you don't get the same modifiers necessarily for just regular fire. Once you start getting those things down, this game just moves, and it's uh, it's really nice. And so once you have that down, then you can start adding in rules, which, from what I've gathered at looking at the scenarios we're about to be playing, you just add in one or two things each time. So um, last time we played, we added in hedgerows. And then uh, this upcoming game, we're, we're going to be adding uh, artillery, and then pretty soon we have half-tracks. And so you start adding in uh, these pieces in really digestible formats, and it's it's really great. Another game I thought I would just mention real quick, and this is completely off topic, is my wife and I have been playing a game called Welcome To. And Welcome To is a twist on the roll and write genre. Uh, roll and write, of course, is where uh, you roll a dice and then you have a piece of paper and you do something with those die results. Either you add the number or you draw a shape associated with the number, something like that on, on your piece of paper. So Welcome To is a twist on that. You have three stacks of cards and you flip over a card, and that gives you a number in a special action. And you use that number to fill in a row of houses from low to high. And then you're trying to do certain things. So you make like a cluster of four houses, and they're all fenced in or, or something like that. And you get points that way. And I got to say, it's probably the best roll and write game that we've played. It's got some really tough decisions because everything seems viable and seems like a good fun decision really recommend it i know it has nothing to do with war games but my wife and i've been playing and we played it with her family and we really enjoyed it uh, so that's been a lot of fun real quick i think i'll mention uh i played twilight struggle a couple of times recently and that made me realize just how terrible i am at that game i mean i am really bad i just don't see things in that game one other game i thought i would spend a little bit more time on is a game i just played this last weekend and that's Baptism by Fire, Battle for Kesserine from Multiman Publishing. This is from the Battalion Combat Series. So, BCS. And from what I understand is Dean Essig developed this game in this series to be something less difficult than OCS, Operational Combat Series. And I think once you get the game, and once you have the game played, that's probably true. The problem is, like I've said, the rules to OCS are super digestible. You really think they're intimidating, but they make sense, and they're easy to follow. The series rules for BCS, Battalion Combat Series, are really muddled. And you start getting terms that aren't, at least were not familiar to me from other games being used regularly. So, for example, uh, drop the support. Well, a support isn't defined until towards the end of the rulebook, and it, it, it just gets confusing. And there's a lot of specific scenario or situations where certain types of units can only do certain types of things. So only certain type of units can do an attack. Only certain types of units can do attack by fire, which is essentially, you can kind of think of it as armored units, like bombarding a 
infantry position or, or something like that. Only certain units can engage. So you have armored units engaging another group of armored units. Or only certain units can do shock attack. And when you stare at the rules, it's it's hard to take that in. Now, fortunately, there's some pretty good charts that you can follow as you play. But as you sit there and you work through these, I don't know, 27 pages of rules, it was just really hard to follow. And so we sit down and play. And the good news is you start out in the first turn. You don't even have to worry about support. Well, at least in the scenario we played. So no one's in support. So we got this turn under our belts where basically we were just moving in and attacking. And then in subsequent turns, you can mark units in support. Basically, a support unit is an armored unit giving support to a unit without an armor rating. And so it makes them less susceptible to certain attacks. And it also gives them attack modifiers in combat. Okay, so then you start to add that rule in. And... Overall, once we got it on the table, and I know this is a cliche in board gaming, is uh, you just need to see it played to understand. But I really think BCS is one of those games. Those rules were brutal, and and I don't know what the deal is because I really found the OC. I would I wouldn't have the same complaint about OCS. The OCS rules were fantastic. For whatever reason, the BCS rules were just a slog and a bear to work through. There were so many definitions, but they're not your typical terms, which is fine. That's that's great for being unique and not depending on... You shouldn't expect players to, to know what a Zoc is as they come into your game in case it's a completely new player, right? But for whatever reason, this was just really hard. But once we got it on the table, things really started to make sense, and underneath that dog of a rule book is a really interesting system so it's it's pretty cool because another another thing to re- that's really hard to digest is how you move and interact with your units they're they're limited so you can move and do fire events so let's just say uh, engagement or um, attack by fire which remember is a kind of a barrage on infantry units they could move and do two attack by fires and then they would stop, and you could go use another unit and move him around and do some things, but you can go back to that first unit and attack with that unit. And there's different things that trigger a stop, and it's just those rules are really kind of wonky as well, but that also allows you to do some cool things. So you move in with group A, they do conduct an attack by fire, maybe they do two of them, right? Okay, then they... um, you move in with group B, and then you spot with that first group for a barrage on another hex, and then they can then they can be involved in an attack. And then once they clear a path, then you move in group C, now that you have a hole, and then it's a really interesting scale because you're you're like a step down from operational combat series, and so you're dealing with a, a neat level of units. And it, it kind of simulates a little, like, faster action. Another the other thing I like is you activate a whole formation at once. So, you know, let's say the German player, for example, would activate the African Corps. He would move all of those units. He can attempt a second activation. So you could double up. So you could, like, get in position with a really great turn, 
team or a really great turn, excuse me, and then just hope that you get that second activation. Sometimes you do, sometimes you don't, and then uh, then it passes to the other player. So then maybe me as the uh, U.S. or the the British player, uh, I activate the first infantry, and uh, I do what I do with them, and then I go for a second activation. Or and there's all these things you have to literally keep your supply lines from crossing. Uh, and so you're moving supply lines and you're watching how you blend with your troops um, just to keep things organized. And that, that's really important. Sometimes it's easier said than done. So we did kind of the learning game of Battle of Kasserine or Baptism by Fire. And at the start of the game, the British supplies are just foobar, right? I mean, you have the when you're mixing supply lines in BCS, it's called crossing the streams, which is pretty great. Yeah, like. That's pretty neat. Um, so everything's crossing the streams, and you've got mixed units, and you're just in a really shitty position. But it's still competitive because the German objectives are really ambitious. So uh, British player is just in total shit. They're not near as their command radius is a lot smaller, so you have to operate within the range of your HQ. But, like, the Africa Corps has a command radius of 12, so your units can drive out 12 hexes and still operate where, like, the CCA on the British side only has a command radius of 5 hexes, so less than half. But the, the German player has to do so much. And it's really hard if they don't get those double activations or if they don't dislodge a group that they need to dislodge on the first turn. So it makes it competitive. Our game came down to one victory point, and it came down to a gamey as fuck, um, gamey as hell opportunity for if I had gotten a double activation, I could have ran to an objective hex and blocked it. I I told him I'm going to do this because it's the first game, and who wins really doesn't matter in a learning game. But it shows us, like, well, don't leave objective hexes completely open. Oh, another thing, you have to mark objectives. So if you're going to attack units, you actually have to mark that area with objectives. Now, you can you get two objective markers in some situations, and you can place those on one hex to get a plus one combat modifier. It's called a double tap. But you also need those objective markers to take victory point hexes. So if I'd gotten the double activation, which I did not, I would have just ran onto an objective hex and blocked the victory point. Again, that's gamey as hell. But I think the important thing to take away is, oh, you can do this. So if you care about winning, don't leave victory points completely undefended. Uh, like, there wasn't even a Zoc to stop my movement. Anyways, it was, uh, it was a lot of fun. So takeaways from that. Really interesting scale. Kind of, the turns can be long, but it's, it's kind of like, it's, it's fast-paced. I think our game was only three turns. And we probably played for, I don't know, eight, uh, six, six hours, six hours, something like that. So that's long, but that was a learning game for both of us. I think we could have cranked that down. I mean, the British player, you really have some tough decisions because you're kind of masked at, at the edge of the map. And it's like, okay, where, where is he going and where do I want to defend? Because these guys are in a shit ton of trouble. But I have this big gaping hole in the middle of our lines, and maybe I should defend that. Anyways, so making those tough decisions probably slowed uh, some of my decisions down. It was a neat game. You have to work through those rules, though, and it's a shame.
because I don't think they should be that tough, especially when you're designing it to be easier than OCS. Yeah, maybe the gameplay is easier. Sure, sure, it, it probably is, but the rules aren't, and the digestion isn't, and there's a lot of special situations for when you can do certain things. Fortunately, those special situations are summarized nicely with charts. Okay, let's go ahead and move on to the featured game this week. And what I thought I'd talk about this week is a game I've been playing a lot lately. I've played a little bit with individuals uh, on Vassal. My wife even played for a couple hours. Hours meaning game turns. She lasted um, an hour and a half in the game, which did not amount to much time in real life. And then most of my time has been spent solo with this, which uh, will speak to the solo ability of this game. Of course, I'm talking about, I mentioned already, Battle Hymn Volume 1. Gettysburg and P Ridge by Eric Lee Smith from Compass Games in 2018. So this is, from what I understand about this game, this is kind of a follow-up to Across Five Aprils from Eric Lee Smith. This is a brigade-level American Civil War system. And I already talked about Battle Hymn Volume 2 coming out, uh, which will cover Bentonville and Shiloh. And so I, I don't know if there will be any changes or updates to the rules, but you have this system in place that I, I think works really great for brigade-level civil war. So how this game, let's, let's just look kind of broad picture at the, at the concept of this game and, and kind of how everything works, is you have all these brigades and you have infantry, you have cavalry, artillery, and then um, cavalry, artillery. You activate those units by command by drawing their division chits. So, for example, maybe you're drawing McClaw's division as the Confederate player, and then that's going to activate several brigades under McClaw's. And then you get to move all those guys around. Every infantry unit has the same movement allocation. Cavalry is all the same, Ca- uh, artillery is the same, and mounted artillery. All that, all, all of them move the same, whether you're unit or confederate. So you draw your chit, and you conduct a movement turn. So if I if I draw McClaw's division, I move all of McClaw's brigades that are on the map. And then as soon as you're done with that, uh, you draw another chit, and you keep drawing chits until it's empty. There are two chits, one for each side, a USA chit and a CSA combat chit. Anytime that these are drawn, you conduct combat. And then depending on which chit you draw will determine which side is the attacker in combat. And so, and what's interesting is in some scenarios and at some points in the campaign game, certain sides will have the initiative, meaning they can, instead of putting their combat chit in the cup, they can choose whenever they want to conduct combat on their turn. So if you get lucky... And okay, I get Hood's division, McClaw's division, and I get them both into position for a strong attack. Instead of letting the Union player respond, I can go ahead and play my combat chit, and then vice versa, of course, for the Union player. You know, they could have, they have the third core uh, activate, and then they could they could move their brigades all around, and get in a strong position, and then play their chit if they have the initiative. So it's 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 simple, but it, it's really fun. And kind of the combat is pretty pretty interesting. It's it's a little chaotic and it's a little bit burdensome, but I think the chaos was the intent of the designer here. I think they intended it for 
like you're trying to set up these great moves, but then everything kind of gets interrupted based on the chit draw and never, it doesn't really always go the way you want. Like you really like, Oh man, if I could just get hoods division before the union player can get his lines reformed, I can, I can crush them here. So uh, it's a little bit chaotic. How combat works is anytime a unit or most anytime a enemy unit enters the zone of control of an enemy. So the surrounding hexes, the Zoc, they receive an approaching fire marker. And so when combat begins, you have any attacker artillery that's not adjacent to an enemy unit can bombard. Artillery is not super effective in this game, but that's the result of, of Gettysburg, right? Um, their artillery... I mean, hell, on the, on the third day, there was probably at the time the world's largest artillery bombardment and, uh, you know, it really didn't do anything. So you can have some nice results with artillery, but, uh, it doesn't do a whole lot. And, you know, if you're, if you're three hexes out in artillery, you're not, you're really not, probably not going to do much of anything anyway. So you have artillery fires, uh, the attacker can back off, but then you do this approach fire face. And so approach fire is carried out just like normal con combat, except it has a, a negative modifier to the two-hit chance. So you're rolling against a number to hit units in that hex, and you need to roll less than or equal to. Uh, so you subtract that by three on approach fire. So it, it seems like in most situations, uh, if, you charge, if you're moving adjacent to an enemy, you, you may be safe, but not always, because if they have the high ground, and it's something like the Iron Brigade, which has a strong modifier to their attacks... Uh, you're going to negate that minus three really quick. And so you're right back to normal. Uh, it's pretty interesting. And then then you go on to, okay, every cluster of adjacent enemies is considered an engagement, and you resolve that engagement. You do all your fire combat. Then the defender, basically, when you resolve fire against the two-hit chance. So if they're out in the open, let's say it's a five. Open terrain is five. Okay, so no other modifiers... Uh, the firing unit's morale is zero, and it, they roll a die equal to their good standing SPs, um, strength points. So let's say they're four. You roll four dice. Every die that is five or less is a hit. Okay, then they do a morale check, the unit that was fired upon, uh, which is a base of five, and then uh, five or, let's see, you need to roll less than five, but you subtract a negative morale or add a positive morale to that number. So if those zero, again, you're rolling a five. If they fail, they will take a reduction. Is that the exact word? That's So they take their losses and, oh man, it is a, uh, a loss. That's It's just a loss. So if they fail the morale check, their first hit, so however many dice were below that two hit chance, the the target will take losses and demoralizations. So if you fail, you take one loss, which is a, a dead unit, right? So if you had four SP, now you're down to three SP. Every other hit that was scored against you is a demoralization. So let's say three hits were scored. You would take a loss and two demoralizations. So now you only have one good standing SP left in your stack of four. And if that number ever reaches zero, that unit either shatters or is demoralized or uh, shatters or is eliminated. 
I think is what it is. Anyways, and you continue to do that combat for two rounds unless the attacker advances after combat. Or, I'm sorry, if the attacker is still in the zone of control of the defending unit, you have to go to round two. And if you are still... If you still, as the attacker, have not caused the defending unit to retreat, you have to retreat as the attacker. Another thing I really like about this game is, okay, let's say I have a great unit with 8 SP, and the enemy approaches with 2 units, and they have it, however many guys, it doesn't matter. So I have a unit or a brigade to my left and a brigade to my right. On approach fire and normal combat fire, I have to screen even if one of the guys were already there. So if the left unit in front of me was already present and did not have an approach fire marker and the guy on the right comes up, I have approach fire on the guy on the right, but half of my SPs are screened by the guys on the left. So I can only approach fire with half of my healthy and good standing SPs, so four pretty interesting same thing on a uh, combat except you have four guys firing on the guys on the left and four guys firing on the guys on the right and it's just it, it's simple but it, it's fun um and that's that's kind of my takeaway for this whole game but before i get there very f far wow I, I really meant to go through the rules later but i pretty much have just covered everything Any, you know there's terrain modifiers and there's uh you know you can do some things with cavalry like uh you can dismount, and then they can act like a normal infantry unit, basically. And there's, uh, you know, cavalry can't intentionally move in ranged artillery and infantry, all that stuff. There's some other rules going on, but that's basically the gist of the game. You're pulling chits and activating divisions or cores at random, and then you move these brigades. And then these combat chits come out, and you resolve combat wherever units are adjacent to each other. And uh, sometimes that's exactly what you want, and sometimes that's not. And it's a little chaotic, and it's a lot of fun. Here's the deal, though. This game could have used a little bit more development in the rules. So, again, easy but fun. But I don't, I don't think this is much harder than something like Commands and Colors. But the rules just need some clarity in situations. So... For example, an approach fire marker lasts through a turn. So if combat resolves and then you move next to someone, the marker stays. The game is silent as far as I can tell. If you go to the combat phase, you get a chance to retreat. The defender can retreat in cavalry out of there first. And the question is, and it just this is just an example... So let's say the attacker received an approaching fire marker from that cavalry unit, and the cavalry unit runs away before you resolve approaching fire. Well, does the approaching fire marker stay? So if a Union infantry unit then advances next to them, would that approaching fire stay on the Confederate? Well, I think clearly the answer is no, but there's no clear indication that that would actually be pulled away. And so where I feel like this game is new war game player friendly and I, I still think it is i think it it is it's hindered by the rules clarity 
that could have just used a little bit more fleshing out. And it has some examples of combat, but even after I played this, um, let's see, I've done, I haven't done the campaigns all the way through, but I've done the Gettysburg campaign twice, the P Ridge scenario, and then the, the best three hours um, scenario. I still find the uh, like full-fledged combat examples pretty hard to follow. And that's got to be my biggest gripe with this game. Rules could really use some some tinkering, but they're they're still you can work with them. And if, if you kind of have familiarity and and maybe if you don't, I don't know. I think you can work through these things. Like it, it makes sense to pull the approach fire marker if there's no one left around. But maybe you don't, and maybe, maybe I'm wrong. So let me back up a little bit. Before I got to the rule summary, I kind of meant to talk about the components and the maps. Um, so the counters, they're all great. Um, nice quality uh, you'd expect from Compass Games counters. They all clipped well. Good selection, good, clear information. It, I did find it interesting that everything, you know, every infantry unit has the same move value, but it, they still printed the movement on on the counter i just thought that was uh, i don't know i i thought that was interesting you don't need it on there but it's there one complaint normally i wouldn't mention this but it was such a problem that i feel like it's worth mentioning these things were a pain in the ass to punch out of the counter sheets like i tried drunk one night and that was a terrible decision and then even then when i was sober it was really pain in the ass to get these things out Bad enough that I feel the need to mention it. Um, normally, I wouldn't care. So that was that was weird. They're great counters. You're just gonna have to work to get them out. Uh, let's talk about the maps. Or, or real quickly, I will mention there's player aid cards, and the player aid cards are fantastic. There's kind of an overabundance of them. There's two player aid cards, and I think you get three copies of them. Uh, so that's nice. They're very clear. They have the information you need. They're they're easy to work with. And I'm going to give them credit because even though the sequence of play is easy and simple, you draw chits, you put the chits back in the cup. They still put it on there. And those first couple turns and well, shit, the first campaign game I played, it was actually really helpful to have those on there. Okay, let's talk about the maps. So you have two great big kind of oversized maps. So you end up with these... Um, these nice hexes to work with you're only going to have see at the max you'll have five counters in a hex but that's a rare situation so you have your unit counter um, you can only have one unit per hex you'll have your sp indicator your demoralization objective hexes well maybe maybe you'd only have four maybe five okay uh um, approaching fire uh so you can fit all those in there nicely they're 22 or no, they're 39 by 25. So I didn't have any plastic to go with them, but I just put two, two uh, plexiglass sheets together and that was fine. The art is fantastic, especially on the Gettysburg map. We'll talk about the P Ridge map here in a little bit. The Gettysburg map is kind of this faded, worn, uh, muted brown tan color. There's not a lot of popping color on the map. Um, you know, it's, it's this tan, uh, this light green and then and dark green. But on the Gettysburg map, it's really easy to differentiate between most of the terrain. And except for in a few places, everything's really clear. 
in the actual Gettysburg hexes, you lose a little bit of the, the hex numbers just because there's an absurd amount of roads. And a lot of information is printed on the map. So they, they go with this 39 by 25 map size, but it's actually kind of unnecessary. But that's not a complaint because it, it looks great. Uh, like you have holding boxes for shattered units and you have your two hit modifiers and then the terrain effects chart. Uh, so Gettysburg map looks fantastic. The P excuse me, the P Ridge map actually looks pretty good itself, but it's a little harder to read terrain and it's all just kind of green because 95% of this map is either woods or forest. And at certain spots, and I want to say particularly in the forest, I think I kind of lost the elevation a little bit. Um, as I'm looking up at it close up now, I'm having no issues. So that's how it would go. Um, so really neat, though. They both look kind of like worn battle maps. And like they'll have like fake coffee stains and things like that. So a nice production level on the maps and counters. Okay, what I thought I would do now is spend some time talking about the scenarios for, for this game. There are actually quite a few. There are a total of... There's two short scenarios, the individual days of Gettysburg, two campaign games, and then the individual days of Pea Ridge. To be honest, the amount of scenarios don't really line up with the price point, uh, in my opinion. But I don't, I don't know how much more you would add. I feel like if you were going to add more scenarios, you would need to add another engagement. Because I feel like between the scenarios presented, the game does a great job of capturing the historical events that took place. So let's start with Gettysburg. So again, there's Gettysburg and, and there's Pea Ridge that, that are covered here. Uh, Gettysburg, you get two shorter sh scenarios, like I said. One of those is Pickett's Charge, and the other one is uh, Best Three Hours. Um, I only played Best Three Hours, and it was fine. Everything's just kind of laid out for you there. You're gathered around Round Top and Little Round Top, and you're confined to a smaller area, which makes sense. The Confederate player gets one more. I'm flipping through here to look real quick yeah the confederate player gets wright's brigade under anderson's division but the union player gets nine brigades under various cores so you do get a little bit of the reinforcements that would take place on the the full campaign games going on but and you're only going to play three full turns here so they are they are short but i think the combat resolution is going to or well it did uh take a while and i just don't know how much desire i i'll have to go back to these games what i would rather do and i have not played them yet but i think i'd rather do the full days so you don't have to commit to this full campaign game you can just stay and play one day uh, because the campaign game is pretty long several turns each day and then you have night turns where you can bring back some of your shattered troops stuff like that so again i did i did not play the individual days what i did do is i played the campaign game for gettysburg twice uh, one solo and then i i started but never finished a a vassal play 
of the campaign game. But before I get into the details of how the campaign games work, I figured I'd go ahead and mention Pea Ridge because I think the Gettysburg campaign and the Pea Ridge campaign games are, are it'll be best if I compare them at the same time. So Pea Ridge, all you get is you get two days, which is fine. I don't, I think Gettysburg speaks for itself. It's probably the most written about battle in American history, maybe other than D-Day, and I guess rightfully so. It was the largest engagement of the war, and many historians, I'm sure, would say it was uh, it was the turning point of the war. Pea Ridge, it's interesting to see it covered just because it's, I'm not saying it's not important, but it was early war, and it was in the Trans-Mississippi Theater, and it was only, it was probably less than 20,000 troops. So you get this two-day engagement in northern Arkansas, northwest Northwest Arkansas, <clears throat> and the the Confederates try to conduct double envelopment of the Union, and they get in position, and by the second day they're essentially out of supplies. They have no ammo left. Basically, on the second day they try to scare the Union soldiers into uh, surrendering by kind of firing off the last of their artillery ammo that has no effect and it's clearly a, a union victory as the confederate soldiers were forced to essentially get back to uh, western central arkansas i guess so surprised to see it here but i'm glad it was included because the campaign game is is really surprisingly great so obviously gettysburg does a fantastic job, I think, of capturing the feel of Gettysburg if you do the campaign. You start off, and, you know, the Confederate players, are, they're marching down the Chambersburg Pike, and the Reynolds shows up with the First Corps and everything. It, it captures, to some extent, the uh, accurately captures the history. Uh, that's great, but I don't feel like it gives you a lot of choice in the tactical decisions you make. Once the Union player digs in, I feel like the Union player has some decision where are they going to make their stand. Of course, obviously some spots are better because you don't you don't want to let the Confederate player get, you know, little round top or, or round top or any of those, be Culp's Hill, because those are their objective hexes. So of course the Union player will fight like hell to defend those. So <clears throat> you get some decision as the Confederate player and how you go about grabbing those objective hexes, but the battle lines take shape pretty quick uh, from what I gathered. Comparing that to Pea Ridge, Pea Ridge starts out pretty interestingly. The Confederate players mass to the north and they essentially have two wings of their, um, their forces. But the Confederate player is tasked with, okay, do I do I go around to the east and and come down? Let's see, who's... Now I'm going to forget exactly who. So it would have been Price's division around the east to Elkhorn Tavern. And then you're going to send a good half of your forces to the west down to Leestown. Because there's only two roads. And right in the middle is Pea Ridge which is this bluff that is basically blocking uh, the access access to, there's three objective hexes, so the third objective hex, which is, what is it? It'll come to me. Pratt's store. 
which is basically due south of the center of the Confederate lines at the start of the campaign. So due south of Pea Ridge. So you have this interesting choice of how do you split your forces and go around this bluff to take these three objective hexes? Because going over Pete's Ridge, you hit really dense forests with no roads. And you just crawl through there. About three hexes a turn is about what you can do with infantry. Or I guess that would... Yeah, something like that. Three hexes, maybe more, maybe four with cavalry. It's not important because it's not very viable. But on the west side, you have this, uh, you have a road that's not as, it's not a full-fledged road like on the east side, so you can move faster on the east. And it's not viable to send all of your force to the east on the faster road because of the single stacking limit. You just create a massive traffic jam. And so the Confederate player's tasked with this decision. And then the Union player is basically masked. He has some forces at Elkhorn Tavern. But the majority of Carr's division, so the 4th Division and Osterhaus, are southwest of, of Leestown. And you have, this, you have this road that's shooting northeast. So you can pretty much get in position where you want. But you have to decide as a Union player... Who do I send where? Uh, you obviously have, you know, Carr's division is typically in much better shape than the rest of the stuff. Um, and it's an interesting decision where I think it would really shine, excuse me, is in a face-to-face game. I haven't used these, but you can use decoy or dummy markers. And so maybe as a Confederate player, you'd actually be able to bluff an attack over the bluff or send real guys directly to Pratt's store as you send dummy counters either on the western flank of the Union or, or the right flank of the Union. It, it's just interesting. I feel like there's a little bit more freedom in your tactical decisions. You know what you need to do in Gettysburg. You're going to follow You're gonna follow the main roads pretty much directly as it played out historically. And that's great. It does a great job of capturing that, I think. Pea Ridge... Same same thing, I, I feel like it captures, maybe it doesn't feel quite as historical to me, but it felt more fun, if, if that makes sense. And so it does some neat things too, like on the second day, I think uh, you know the Confederate player runs out of artillery ammunition, so they can't use any artillery on the second day. Um, there were some mixed brigades that can't engage with I think they can't go within one hex of infantry, maybe. Yeah, so there were some American Indian brigades under McCulloch. And, yeah, they can't enter the Zoc zone of control of artillery or horse artillery. And then they automatically fail bombardment checks from artillery. So, so you have those units, which are unique. You obviously don't have those in the Gettysburg campaign. And so it's really neat. Uh, I spent a lot of time talking about it because I was really surprised with just how great a job they did with this P Ridge scenario. When I first bought the game, I thought it was going to be more of an afterthought, but I think a lot of, a lot of thought went into it to make a really fun, playable game. I haven't played the first day or second day scenarios, but overall it's a lot of fun. And so the campaigns work is they, the Pea Ridge campaign, you start with all your forces, both sides on the board. The Gettysburg campaign, you have reinforcements arriving as they did historically. So you start off with uh, the Union player has 
Of course, they have their... Um, they basically have cavalry on the map while the first corps moves up. And then the 11th corps arrives. And the Confederate player has... Let's see, it would be Davis and Archer uh, were kind of the first to arrive on the Chambersburg Pike. And that kind of kicks off the engagement. And then as you play through the game, everyone else arrives on turn and you add more and more troops uh, to the the campaign. So actually the campaign game is a nice way to learn the game because, at least the Gettysburg, sorry, the Gettysburg campaign game is a nice way to learn the game because you start with so few troops on the board. Um, so it's little little engagements at first. And then you get more and more responsibility as you add more and more troops. And then the engagements grow larger and larger. So I would actually consider the Gettysburg campaign teaching this to someone before we dove into Pickett's Charge or the best three hours. Because the best three hours, you're going to have these massive engagements right off the bat because you're confined to a smaller area. So those are the scenarios. Again, um, I, I honestly think that the P Ridge one offers more in player choice. But they're both a lot of fun, and I would probably play those over the the smaller stuff again. Okay, so let's wrap up with some just some final thoughts on this game. Obviously, I'm a fan of it. I really enjoy it. It's easy to play. It's a lot of fun. Uh, you chuck a ton of dice, but it's got a nice historical feel to it. Uh, maybe some people disagree, but Gettysburg really seem to capture the essence of Gettysburg, in my opinion. Casualties are certainly really high in this game. It feels like every engagement, you're at least taking demoralization. So if a hit is scored against your unit, you're taking some kind of casualty, either demoralization or you'll take one loss plus demoralization. So you can lose units uh, quickly if you're not careful, especially uh, units with low morale ratings. Overall, the components, even with my small complaints, uh, you know, the the the, mar- the counters not punching out of the cardboard very well and the P-Ridge map not being quite as easy to read as Gettysburg, in my opinion. Uh, overall, the components are great. The play red charts are, are really nice. I do think the price point is a little bit high. I think this is MSRP of $80, which, yeah, I mean, I get it. There's nice production value here in, in the cost of making these things. I, I understand all that stuff. It's just it's just pretty high uh, for a game like this. I think my biggest complaint is the rules could have used just a little bit more development. But if if you can work through those, there's, there's a really nice game here. I will mention one thing, and I guess this isn't a critique, uh, because this... I don't... I'm not very in tune with how vassal modules are made, so I don't know what the decision here was, or maybe someone just didn't make it. When you, If you play this game on vassal, only the Gettysburg stuff is available, so maybe the P-Ridge map isn't available. I have no idea. I have no idea what the process of was for making this vassal module. But it is pretty great. It's a very well-developed vassal module, so I recommend that, but you won't find the P-Ridge stuff there. Okay, so great game. Highly recommend it. Uh, I will be looking forward to Battle Him Volume 2. Uh, I think that pre-order price is a little friendlier than the full MSRP price. I unfortunately paid the full MSRP price because I bought it from a friendly local game store. But, you know, Compass Games, they have sales. You know, they just had a Christmas sale and then a New Year's sale or 
winter sale, whatever they called it. And I think you could pick it up for a little bit of discount, and then definitely at that price point, I'd recommend it. So, yeah, we'll look forward to see if there's any changes to the system rules for the upcoming game. But as far as I know, there won't be any. And then what I thought it would be interesting to do is recommend a couple books that I've read that apply to this game. Uh, so there's three. One of them I just... I have it right here in front of me. It's The Maps of Gettysburg by Bradley Gottfried. And to be honest, I haven't read much of it. What I use this book for is uh, both Gettysburg. So I listened to... I've mentioned it already. Shelby Foote's Civil War. I listened to that a lot. As I was listening to the Gettysburg stuff, I used the Maps of Gettysburg Gettysburg book to kind of supplement so I had a visual representation of the battle. And as far as I could tell, this was a really nice depiction. Um, there's maps from different scales. So you have you know the whole big picture to you get down to uh, single engagements and stuff. And, and it's really well done. I did not read the much of the writing at all so i can't speak to that but the maps are nice and they're very clear so if you like maps or if you're listening to an audiobook and you kind of want to see what's going on i i would recommend this uh, i already mentioned one that's shelby foot's civil war so volume one and two would apply to this game uh, i'm not all the way through volume two i'm just a little bit past uh, gettysburg in terms of the audiobook but his work on Gettysburg, I really enjoyed. Probably, a, I don't know, a few hours of audiobook. I, I don't know how many pages that equates to, but it was really enjoyable. I mean, it's Shelby Foote, so it's uh, that book is, I'm sure, highly recommended to anyone just kind of getting a, a taste of the Civil War. It's a massive work. <clears throat> so I would recommend that. I'm sure you could just pick up that book and read the Gettysburg section to just get a taste of the battle if you don't know anything. P Ridge, you could do the same thing, although the book is that, sorry, the section on P Ridge from Shelby Foote's Civil War Volume 1 is pretty short. Um, he doesn't spend near as much time on that battle as others, which makes sense. It was day and a half, but, um, you know, he obviously spends a lot more time on something like the Battle of Sharpsburg than he does P Ridge, but... If you at least want to get a flow for the battle and see what happened and kind of what what led up to that engagement, you could just dive right into the P. Ridge section um, and get a good taste of that. The final book is currently in progress on, and that's Gettysburg by Stephen Sears. So his book on Landscape Turned Red, which was on the Battle of Antietam, I really enjoyed reading it. His Gettysburg book his Gettysburg book is pretty okay uh, I'm listening to the audiobook and it just goes into a lot of detail and when I read Landscape Turned Red the, the Antietam book my only complaint was this is a really nice depiction of this battle but it could have used a little bit more visual aid so more maps just just to keep your mind fresh kind of where everyone stood because he goes in that much detail so I don't know if I'd recommend it as an audiobook, but it's been a nice it's been a nice book on on Gettysburg, and it's got a ton of information. It goes into a lot more detail than uh, Foot could have done. I mean, Foot's book is already massive. So, anyways, that's another one that you may be worth checking out. And then another book that I have in my to read pile is The Battle of Gettysburg by Craig L. Simmons. Um, I don't want to 
say it's good or bad or anything yet. I bought it because it had good reviews and it was cheap on Kindle, so that may be worth looking into. Okay, so that will wrap up this episode of History on the Table. Um, covered a lot of things this episode, but I hope you enjoyed it and I hope you consider Battle Hymn Pew Ridge. You're not you're not getting into the level of detail that might be found in something like Line of Battle or Great Battles of the American Civil War. But you're only doing dealing with less than 20 pages of rules, and those rules are they're not super condensed like an MMP rule book. There's lots of examples, and although they're not very well written, you could pick this up in no time and really just have a lot of fun with it. And it's a great game to teach to someone because there's really not a lot you have to teach, especially if they understand how movement typically works in a war game. So anyways, hope you can uh, give that a look. It, it's definitely worth checking out. And that'll that'll do it. So if you need to get hold of us on the web, email address is historytablepodcast at gmail.com. Historytablepodcast at gmail.com. Feel free to send any questions, comments, concerns, critiques, whatever. We may read them on there. Maybe we won't. And then, of course, if you want to follow us on Twitter, it's at historytablepod. Again, that's at History Table Pod. Okay, that's going to do it for this episode. I'll look forward to talking with all of you again soon. Bye-bye.